is so weird. God, please be with Grant Lowe. I mean, I am Grant Lowe, but most people don't call me Grant Lowe. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, they don't. Like, most people are like Chaplin Lowe or like other things. But so I feel like you guys shouldn't be here right now. <laughs> I feel like we should be having like a living room conversation. So I'll just stand up here under the lights and this will be our living room for the next like 25 minutes or so. Um, so when I was in seminary, we had these friends, uh, Meg and Bruce Herman. And Meg and Bruce, um, I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell, um, Sandy and I did. And uh, we went to this little church called the Orthodox Congregational Church of Lanesville. And it was just like 10 miles from the seminary, but it took like 30 minutes to get there because it's all roads like that. And it was just this delightful little church. And um, it was this really special time of community. And Megan Bruce Herman, um, Bruce is a, a painter and a professor at Gordon College, but they had a, they had a home in Lanesville. It was kind of set back in the woods and um, just this like beautiful um, log cabin-esque kind of um, almost farmhouse sort of thing. And um, they had a couple of goats and a horse and um, student, uh, Gordon Connell students would, would hang out there every Sunday after church. So for uh, our whole time, um, we pretty much spent every Sunday at the Herman's house. And uh, Meg would make her chicken soup and put it on the, on the stove and people would bring bread or whatever. And, and we'd just sit around and, and talk and eat. And that was like years of our, our lives. Um, <coughs> and Meg and Bruce, just these delightful, godly people. And one night, um, one night uh, they're laying in bed and, and Meg just says to Bruce, she says, you know, all of this just hangs lightly on us, doesn't it? Bruce is like, what do you mean? She's like, all of this, like the house and stuff, like it hangs lightly on us, doesn't it? Bruce is like, I hope so. So the next day, Bruce is in the basement. Uh, he's painting. He has a huge studio that was like 30, 30 foot ceilings, all massive place, all white walls. Like it was, it was remarkable and really beautiful space and all of his paintings, he had paintings lined up in there. And, and he's down there painting and Meg's at work and um, this like solitary cloud, totally true story, this like solitary storm cloud kind of like floats over um, Gloucester and a solitary lightning bolt goes boom and it hits this massive pine tree like 30 yards from their house and the bolt of lightning shoots into the top of the pine tree straight down into the ground, into the granite rock, shoots through the granite rock into the electrical system of their house, and every single electrical socket in their house explodes. <laughs> and within a minute, the entire house was on fire. So we got a call, and um, all of us students, we all went over and watched Meg and Bruce's house burn to the ground. Um, and it did, it burned to the ground. And then we went through afterwards and like cleaned stuff up and found old paintings. And it was, it was, it was pretty traumatic and crazy, but it happened the day after um, Meg said that. And it was really kind of a fascinating thing, um, the testimony that they had afterwards. But it really ended up being true that, that what they had, their stuff, really did kind of hang lightly on them. 
um, because in the midst of their stuff going up in flames, um, they found security and love uh, in their community. They witnessed to the goodness of God. It was pretty remarkable. Um, so this morning we're going to look at a passage that's always kind of astounded me, um, always hit me in, in some different ways, and I just want to talk about it, really, and share some reflections and some thoughts. Uh, I like that we've been standing to read scripture. Will you guys stand while we read, we read uh, Mark chapter 10? As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your mother and your father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Father, thank you for your holy word. Um, thank you for the scriptures and how you reveal yourself to us in them. And thank you, Lord, for this uh, scripture that is before us. Um, please, Father, uh, speak by your spirit. I ask this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so um, beginning of their ministry, beginning of Jesus' ministry and this, this rich young man, I kind of want to call him Kevin, so I'm going to. I'm going to call him Kevin. Um, so as Jesus is setting out his journey, Kevin runs up and kneels before Jesus and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think we want to ask immediately, like, what is he asking and why is he asking it? Right? He, he mentions eternal life. He's asking about eternal life, at least on the surface. Um, but is that really what he's talking about? Is he really interested in mortality? Um, is he really interested in eternity? Is he really a man that's aware of his own fragility, a man who's aware that he's going to die, and he is desperately um, wanting to know uh, what's to come and how to secure eternal life? Or is it the case that instead he's a man who has everything and he's making sure that he has everything, including a secure future when he is done kind of killing it in this life. So is he a guy who's asking the right question because he knows it's the right question, um, but not in tune enough to realize that Jesus will know what he's doing? Is he the guy who says all the right things, but you know it's not real? And I think that is probably the case. But how does Jesus respond to him? Here's what Jesus does. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And what this man has done essentially is he has waded into deep waters with no intention of, of diving down into the deep waters. I almost picture him like this. I, I picture this guy on one of those like green blow-up rafts that you put in a swimming pool. And he's like kicking back on the raft and he's got a lemonade in his hand. Yet he's over like the deepest waters of the ocean. And he doesn't know that all you'd have to do is dive off and start to dive down to go down into the deep waters. But he's comfortable sitting up on the top. Your question and your language, says Jesus, these are deep waters. Um, 
And as I think about the way that this man responds here, these sort of deep waters that he's walking in, made me think about us, made me think about our community. We're at a Christian college. We have chapel three times a week. We're in deep water all the time, right? We talk about the words of God. We talk about God made flesh. We talk about salvation and sin and repentance and forgiveness. We learn the right words and the right questions and the right this and the right that and the right everything. But I think we need to ask ourselves and should always ask ourselves if we have any intention of diving into the deep waters. Do we really want to dive into the deep waters or is it instead simply a very nice place for us to float, drink our lemonade, hang out on the raft? Are we doggy paddling in deep waters? Are we willing to dive deep? Because I think most of us are confident that one day we're going to die. And salvation means that we will inherit eternal life. But is it just that we want to float on the top of the water until we inherit that eternal life? We just want to make sure things are okay. We need to ask ourselves questions like this. And so Jesus, um, as he's wont to do, doesn't like to leave things sitting on the surface. He takes this man's surface, not so honest question, and he answers it with an honest but somewhat surface answer that's going to make him answer even further deeply. He says, all right, you ask about eternal life. Here's how you inherit it. You don't sin. Ever. You don't murder. You don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Be perfect, and you will inherit eternal life, which is impossible. And it will elicit one of two responses from anyone who is asked to be perfect. It's either going to be, no one can do that, or, of course I've done that. And the rich young ruler, Kevin, chooses the latter. Kevin says to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I've never broken any of the commandments. And at this point, the proper response, what I would think Jesus would do, what I would do, is it's time to tell him to go away because this is the type of person that is probably fairly annoying. Um, he reminds me of, so like, sometimes when I'm getting to know people, I'll ask them um, things about their lives, right? I'll ask them, what have you been reading? What was the last Netflix series that you binged? Um, and every once in a while, someone will, will try to give the answer that they think I want to hear, right? So they'll come up with a book that they've been reading that they think is somehow the book I want them to read. Um, so they'll say, I've been reading Calvin's Institutes. <laughs> For real, this is totally true. Um, I'll be like, really? All right. Um, what have you loved about it? Well... I'm only, really only just in the first couple of chapters. All right, cool. What, what's been awesome about it? And you watch them trying to come up with something that they've heard about Calvin's Institutes because they're not reading Calvin's Institutes. They, just, they don't know that I would be perfectly, like, way more happy if they would have told me they were reading Agatha Christie or if they had been rereading Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, but they come up with this, and I think that's this type of guy. I think that's what Kevin is like, right? He, he's asking the right questions because it's the right question. Um, but Jesus pushes him, and he says, be perfect. And Kevin has a choice. He can either say, no one can do it, or I've done that. 
and he chooses the I've done that, which would annoy me, but this is why Jesus is so amazing. Jesus looks at him, and you would I would expect disdain or annoyance, but he loves him. Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. He loves him despite his cluelessness, despite his false earnestness, despite his flattery and his self-satisfaction, despite the fact that, man, that's him. Uh, the reason Jesus loved him, though, is because he knew that the man needed him. And his next words flow out of his love for him. He invites him into that deep water I was talking about. He says, all right, I'm going to answer you truthfully. You lack one thing. What is it that he lacks? Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. I don't think Jesus was um, uh, somehow just being glib when he said, you lack one thing. I think he's absolutely honest. He's being straight with the man. There's one thing that you lack. You don't trust me. You want to inherit eternal life. You have to trust me. But before you can do that, we have to deal with what you're trusting instead. So go and take everything that you have and sell it. And when you sell it, give what you give, get, give what you get to the poor. And when you've done that, you'll have treasures that you know nothing about, and then come and follow me. See, the, the danger of riches is not greed. The danger of riches is that with riches and with wealth comes the ability to make this world so comfortable that you begin to trust in the fact that you're okay. When you have wealth and you have riches, you have opportunity to create comfort in this world that makes you believe that this world is actually your home. That this world is the place where you actually belong. It's easy to forget that you're a sojourner, an exile, and that you have a true and heavenly home. And that's where this man is. His wealth has given him a place of security, and it's what he puts his trust in. And Jesus says, you have to get rid of that and then come and follow me. And then the man, we get his response. Poor sweet Kevin. He's disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And here's why I think he was sad. He was sad because what he heard in Jesus' words, he heard a value proposition. And the value proposition that he heard was this. Trade your riches now for these potentially esoteric riches that might come in the future. And when he weighed those two things out, he decided not worth it. So he went away sad. A frightening truth is at play here and one that I think we need to be aware of. It is absolutely possible for us to be sad about the fact that we don't trust Jesus, but then not spurn us into trusting Jesus. 
You hear that? If you think about your life and you think about where you're placing your trust, it's absolutely possible to come to the conclusion that you're placing your trust in what you have. You're placing your trust in the security that comes from where you are in the world. And look, make no mistake about it. We are the rich young rulers, right? We have the ability materialistically to create comfort in this world more than 99% of the other people in the world. Before we're too hard on Kevin, we need to think about ourselves, right? So my daughter Flannery, when she was little, she hated the idea of heaven. It scared her to death because it seemed so um, inferior to what is now. It seemed esoteric and out there and she couldn't wrap her mind around something better existing in the future than what is here and now. And we would have discussions about the way that different people in different areas of the world think about and view heaven and how for much of the world they know that this is not their true home. They experience suffering and hunger and pain and tragedy in ways on a daily basis that we don't know. We've been blessed in these crazy, unique ways to be able to live comfortably, to have food in our refrigerator. The idea of heaven for us is not as immediate as it is for some people in the world. We don't want to fall into the trap of becoming squatters here pretending that this is actually our true home. So, what do we do with all this? Um, we know we're the rich young rulers. We know we can make this our home. So we have to ask, what are we trusting in? Where is your trust? Is your trust in Jesus? Or is your trust in the comforts that Jesus has given and provided? Does your stuff hang heavily on you and give you a false sense of security? And what do you do if that value proposition answer is that you find that you do love the world's treasure more than you love heavenly treasure? And this is where it gets really beautiful. There is no way that anyone is going to be able to simply try to conjure up a desire for heaven. There's a way that it happens though. When you look at that value proposition of your treasure here versus your treasure in heaven, personally for me, I can't imagine heaven. I just can't. I love my life here. I love my family and my friends. I love the earth. I love flesh. I love holding this. I even, the getting sick where you're forced to slow down and you have a fever and you can feel the, ch like I love everything about being alive. The idea of a new heaven and a new earth, a new body, new interpersonal relationships, not being married to my wife in the same way. Like those are things that kind of just bake my brain and, and mess with, like I don't know how to do that. But here's what I know how to do. Jesus says, sell your stuff, give it to the poor, you'll have treasures in heaven, and then here's the key. Come follow me. 
He doesn't say, figure out how to love the idea of heaven. He doesn't tell you, set your heart there first. He says instead, come and follow me. Walk with me. Know me. Love me. And let me love you. See the world as I see it. And when you walk with Jesus, when you are present with the Savior, when you spend time with him, when you know him, when your trust gets placed in him, when he then tells you, I've made a home for you, oh, that is what I long for. I can't make it up in my brain. I can't even take all the descriptions in Revelation 20. Like, still, reading all of that is good, but, but where it anchors is in Jesus, and it's him saying, come follow me. And when you follow me, you'll know me. And when you'll know me, you'll think like I think. And you'll see people like I see them. And you'll see the world like I see them. And you'll see pain and suffering like I see them. And I'll transform you by my spirit to be more like me. So that you'll long for the things that I long for. And I was only here for a short time. We are sojourners. We are exiles here. In this amazing, beautiful, remarkable creation. But it's just a taste and a foreshadow of what's to come. So again, I ask you. Deep waters, are you, are you floating on the top or are you diving down and getting to know Jesus? Are you content with just the idea that I'm good here and now and I just want to make sure that when I die, I'm going to be okay? Or are you following him so that what he promises and what he has for us coming is that which we long for? Meg and Bruce, they said it, this hangs loosely on us, and they meant it, and they lived it, because they knew Jesus. Let's go to the Savior. Let's follow him so that we might know him and desire the things that he longs for. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, Lord, we're so grateful that you've blessed us but we also know the traps of blessings. Lord, I thank you for this place. I thank you that you have brought us here, that we might study together, that we might worship together, and that we might seek you together. I pray, Father, that you would be gracious to us in convicting us by your Holy Spirit, not just of our sin, but of the places where we misplace our trust. Father, help us to sell those things, both literally and figuratively, that we might place all of our trust in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us dive into deep waters, that we would seek above all things to know you, to love you, to desire the things that you love. Father, be with our students. I pray that you would bless them uh, for the rest of this day. Uh, watch over them during spring break. Protect them. I pray that you would draw them close to you, that you would bless the relationships uh, that they uh, have over break, um, bless times that they have with family and friends give them times of rest, and I pray that you would be with them. Lord, by your spirit, make us desire you more than all other things, and be with us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.